Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Well, we have a wonderful repeat guest. We're going to be speaking with Paul Fogel, who is an attorney up in San Francisco, and he is with Reed Smith. And you can learn more about him at our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy and also at Reed R-E-E-D-S-M-I-T-H dot com. But let me tell you a little bit about him. Paul Fogel's practice focuses on appeals, writs, post-trial motions, and law in motion matters in a broad range of civil law areas, including unfair competition, health care, trademark infringement, trade secret misappropriation, defamation, products liability, taxation, contracts, privacy, and a whole lot more, including constitutional law. He's handled more than 350 appellate matters, resulting in some 60 published opinions. And these included matters in the California Supreme Court, the District of Columbia, and Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Paul has a number of national and regional clients who engage him directly to represent them in appeals and related proceedings. He regularly provides appellate assistance to Reed Smith's trial attorneys, and he's frequently engaged in non-Reed Smith attorneys to consult on and handle appellate matters for other law firms. Paul was named one of Northern California's top 100 attorneys by Northern California Super Lawyer magazine, and he that what happened in 2005, 2007, and 2008. And he's been included as a super lawyer for appellate law annually from 2004 through 2008. He is terrific. He's been in Best Lawyers as well, and he has so much to share with us, and we're thrilled that he's joining us again. Thank you, Paul, for joining us. Well, thanks for inviting me back, Maury. Well, you're terrific. We'll have to have you back all the time. (laughs) So, Paul, you're going to discuss with us the California Supreme Court's cases, two really important cases in the privacy arena. Why don't you talk about those cases and tell us when they were decided and just give us a short summary. Okay, well, I'm going to talk tonight about uh, two cases uh, decided this year. One is called Sheehan versus San Francisco 49ers, uh, decided in March of this year. And the other is called Hernandez versus Hillside, uh, decided just last month. The Sheehan case deals with pat-down searches of uh, people who attend San Francisco 49er football games. And the Hernandez case deals with unconsented to video workplace surveillance. Okay. So let's start with the pat-down case. How did that case arise? Okay. Well, in that case, we had um, two people, husband and wife, the Sheehans, who were longtime 49ers season ticket holders. Uh, Beginning in 2005, the 49ers, through the NFL, instituted a pat-down inspection policy 
of all ticket holders who are attending 49ers uh, home games. And these pat-down searches were, although they were brief, they were um, essentially full-body searches where um, after uh, an attendee went through the barricades, um, they were subjected to, they were asked to stand rigid with their arms spread wide. Uh, the screeners, which and it has same-sex screeners, so women were screening women and men were screening, uh, screening men ran their hands around the plaintiff's backs and down the sides of their bodies and legs. And San Francisco Police Department uh, people stood by a few feet away just to make sure everything was um, kosher. Um, now, the 49ers implemented that policy, as I said, in, 19, in 2005 and um, permitted this touching, patting, or lightly rubbing all ticket holders for every NFL game that year. And what was very important to this case is that the uh, the fact of the policy and how it was being implemented uh, were uh, a notice of that was given to uh, season ticket holders on the back of their tickets. So people knew ahead of time, at least season ticket holders knew, uh, and then actually anybody who bought a, a ticket even there knew or was deemed to have known deemed to know that they would be patted down as they were entering the stadium. And this is not, uh, I mean, this is just one form of a security um, um, search that the 49ers happened to uh, implement. And the reason this case was important is that uh, all over the state, all over the country, different forms of security are used by private and public entities when we have large gatherings of people, such as at rock concerts or other sports sports games. So this is probably why the Supreme Court was interested in deciding this case. So what exactly was the issue that the Supreme Court was to decide? Well, it's very important to understand, um, to understand how and why this case came out the way it did. It's important to understand a little bit how uh, a lawsuit works its way through the system in California. Um, what happens is when someone sues somebody, uh, the Sheehan sued the 49ers, they file a complaint in the Superior Court. And there are different ways of, uh, of dealing with that complaint. The defendant, the 49ers, can file what's called a demur or a motion to dismiss, saying everything you say in your complaint might be true, but it just doesn't amount to a legal wrong, and so we're entitled to get out of the case. That's called a demur. Right. Now, if the case goes further, um, the defendant, what happens is people uh, engage in what's called discovery, which means depositions or interrogatories. That's just exchanging information, facts, evidence. Show me what you have. I'll show you what I have. And um, that's called discovery. After the discovery process, and so we're well into the lawsuit at this point, maybe a few months, maybe even a few years, um, one of the parties, let's say the defendant, can file what's called a motion for summary judgment, saying, I've looked at all your evidence, and frankly, there's no issue for a jury to, to, uh, to consider, and I'm right as a matter of law, and I'm entitled to get out of this case. And then there's the third step is the trial. Uh, if, if there is a disputed issue, the case can go to trial and the jury or a court sitting as a prior fact can decide factual issues and then render a ruling. Now, it's real important to understand that the Sheehan case arose on what we call a demur, meaning that the Sheehans filed their lawsuit and the NFL or the 49ers said, even if everything you say in your complaint is true, we did not violate your privacy as a matter of law because um, there wasn't a serious invasion of your privacy, you didn't have a reasonable expectation of your privacy, and so forth. So it was a purely legal question. Now, that uh, the, the 49ers' decision to file what we call a demur was, it turned out to be, a key fact in this case. Because when... Uh, and, let me tell you what happened in the lower courts first. Okay. The lower court threw the case out, said, um, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Sheehan, you do not have a reasonable expectation of privacy 
because basically you consented to this um, pat-down. You were notified of the pat-down on the back of the ticket You and the uh, notice of the 49ers pat-down policy is on the website. And um, in deciding to enter our stadium and engage in um, you know, watch, watching a football game, which is different from going to the market or to get food or to get gas or to take uh, public transportation. Those are necessities of life. I don't think we can say that watching a football game at a 49er stadium, stadium is a necessity of, of life, although some people would disagree. <laughs> what did, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but basically, the, the uh, trial judge said, uh, you consented to this by purchasing your ticket and walking into the stadium with knowledge that you were going to be pat down, and that's the end of the story. Right. Then it went up to the Court of Appeal. We have a, a three-level court system in California, Superior Court, Court of Appeal, and Supreme Court. The Court of Appeal said, well, there, there are three justices on the Court of Appeal who uh, sat on this case. Two justices said, we agree. The consent is... Uh, dispositive, gets rid of this case because the Sheehan's knew that the moment they walked into the stadium, they knew from uh, having bought their season tickets that the 49ers had a pat-down policy, and we uh, therefore conclude that there's no reasonable expectation of privacy. There was a dissenting justice who said, you know, I'm really not so sure about that. I think I need a little more factual development. I need the parties to engage in what I said discovery, depositions, interrogatories, and so forth, before I'm prepared to conclude that this case does not have merit. After that decision, the Supreme Court granted review and decided to review the whole question of whether the 49ers policy, uh, at least at this very early stage in the process, um, was sufficiently, um, you know, no-brainer that it did not violate um, the Sheehan's privacy. It's absolutely essential to understand that this case arose uh, in a procedural posture that did not give the 49ers a chance to offer any evidence of why they implemented the policy. And that um, that fact will turn out to be key, as we'll see. Right. So the the real issue of whether the 49ers had sufficient justification for the pat-down really wasn't even before the court. That is absolutely right. And, of course, we don't even know, um, since no, nobody had testified, nobody offered evidence, nobody uh, was deposed, nobody had any depositions, answered, answered any interrogatories. We don't even know why the Sheehan's said they had a reasonable expectation of privacy, even though they had consented to the uh, search, uh, not the search, but the pat-down, by way of buying a ticket. So there were no facts. So the court um, framed the question as whether the plaintiffs had validly consented to the search policy, at least at this early stage of the proceedings. Wow. So it was really an issue of consent when they had a a ticket that says we're going to do this. It was all about consent. If I go then to the game, then I am it. it one can assume that I consented, basically. Is that right? right? That, that, that's basically right. But again, it, it's important to realize that there was no evidence about whether they validly consent, were forced into consenting, um, if they bought a ticket thinking, well, I still have some reasonable expectation of privacy, uh, you know, and what the contours of that expectation uh, were. All of that was not before the Supreme Court. The only thing before the Supreme Court was um, what I I will call the Hill test, which is based on a a test, um, based on a case um, several years ago involving urine testing, testing for... um, for drugs for and drugs. urine uh-huh. by the NCAA. Um, and so this case turned on whether the so-called Hill test could be met by the plaintiffs without doing any um, further discovery or could be defeated by the 49ers without doing any discovery. 
So let me explain what I mean by the hill tent. Yes, that's exactly what I was going to ask you. <laughs> um, in California, the we have a state constitutional right to privacy. It's right in Article One, Section One of the state constitution, and that's unlike the federal constitution that does not have an explicit right to privacy, but that right to privacy was read in by the US, United States Supreme Court in several cases, including the abortion decision. Right. Um, in California, we don't have to worry about interpreting the Constitution because it's right. the right to privacy is right smack in Article One, Section 1 of our state constitution. Right. They, they actually say the word privacy, which is not in this, the federal constitution. That's right. Now, our Supreme Court decided in the Hill case that in order for people to uh, assert a right to privacy, they have to prove three things. One is a legally protected privacy interest. Number two is a reasonable expectation of privacy under the circumstances. And number three, a serious invasion of that privacy interest. So... What is the purpose of this um, this three-part test? Well, at the what they what I said was the demur stage, the earliest stage of a case, it's right in there to weed out claims that are clearly frivolous, clearly ha- don't have any merit. Um, and let's say um, I don't know, you go into a market and uh, um, you're asked to show your driver's license. Um, when you pay for groceries, right? You do not have uh, a legally protected privacy interest or a reasonable expectation of privacy uh, in your in, in your driver's license information when you pay for groceries with a check because um, it's just not considered a serious invasion at that point. Right. Uh, if we if we're going to engage in commercial transactions, you have to give up some privacy, albeit you know. Uh, not very much, and I would say that showing someone your driver's license to prove that the signature on the check is is, is you is not that big of a deal. Right. But this case is was different. I mean, this case involves a, uh, and I have to say, a full-body search, albeit very limited, um, as you're walking into a sports, uh, sports event. So the court um, looked at these three elements legally protected privacy interests, reasonable expectation of privacy, and a serious invasion. Now, as to the legally protected privacy interests, it pointed out that there are two kinds of privacy interests in California. There's something called informational privacy, privacy in your personal information, and that wasn't really involved here. Right. And there's something called um, autonomy, privacy... uh, I don't. I can't. I'm not uh, putting my finger on the uh, on the. Um, oh, autonomy, privacy. That's right. Right. Yeah. Personal. Personal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, your personal space, your body. Right. I mean, you can't. No one has the right to look inside your body or even you know touch your body unless you consent. Usually, that's the usual rule. Right. Right. So this case involved autonomy, privacy, and the court said. You know, every really, everybody really does have a right to autonomy, privacy, and they have a right not to be touched by other people. You know, you can be touched by, you know, you can be kissed when you want to be kissed. You right. can't be kissed by someone you don't want. <laughs> right. You have to have consent. Right. Authority. Mm-hmm. So the courts sort of blew by this one pretty quickly and <laughs> said, you, you have autonomy, privacy, and the Sheehan's had autonomy, privacy, in this case, and it also blew by the third criteria, whether the the invasion here was a serious invasion as opposed to a de minimis or insignificant invasion. And it said basically that when you uh, are pat patted down, that's a serious invasion of your personal space, of your body. Right. And we don't allow um, strangers, um, private or public, to simply pat you down for no reason. So the case then focused on this second element, this big second element called reasonable expectation of privacy under the circumstances. Okay? Right. So what's the court going to do with that? Well, 
I will say it acts, it basically punted. <laughs> and it said... You're using the right lingo. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it said... Right, exactly. It said, you know, we're still at the really early stage of this case. We don't really know all the circumstances. We certainly don't know what led the 49ers to adopt this policy. We can surmise that it has something to do with security. Um, we also don't know all the circumstances about the consent. Did the Sheehan's, uh, were they given sufficient notice of the, um, of the existence of the 49ers policy? Um, if they were given sufficient notice, did they understand what it said? Did they understand that they would be subjected to a full-body search as they were walking into the stadium? Um, there are lots of, you know, unanswered questions. And so the court said, we are not prepared at this point to conclude that they did not, the Sheehan's, did not have a reasonable expectation of privacy because it's really going to turn on, you know, who knew what, when, and where, and, and why. Right. So, so what did the court do with the case? Well... It basically said at the demur stage, at this very early demur stage, there are too many factual questions that we have, too many um, circumstances that have to be developed in litigation. What we are prepared to say is at this stage, this is not a, uh, an insignificant case. This is not a case that should be screened out like the looking at your driver's license, the market case. Right. This is not so insignificant an intrusion, and we cannot conclude that on the basis of mere allegations that the Sheehan's do not have a reasonable expectation of privacy. So now it goes back to the lower court? Right. Well, before I talk about that, okay. I want to just talk about some more things that the Supreme Court said. Because, okay. you know, um, look, the 49ers lost this case at the Supreme Court. That's the... Uh, that's the maybe big headline. Right. But the, you know, silver lining headline and what I think was maybe far more important to the 49ers and to the legal community is that uh, this, this is not game over. This is game started. And uh, because the court made some observations in its opinion, the court said, um, well, um, was safety the reason the NFL adopted the pat-down policy? We don't know, but we are prepared to say that, quote, enhancing safety is substantial. Those who provide private entertainment venues, including the 49ers at NFL football games, have a substantial interest in protecting the safety of their patrons. So you can see there they're giving they're giving uh, the 49ers some help. <laughs> well, they're saying, you know, yeah. we're we're not prepared right now to, to say this case is is over. Right. Uh in favor of the plaintiffs. We want to we want to see a little more development of that. Right. But on the other hand, the court said when security measures substantially threaten a privacy right, courts have to review the policy for reasonableness. Right. But we can't do that in this case because we don't have enough information about the circumstances or the reasons for the pat-down policy. And that's because the 49ers have never been called upon, it's never been their obligation at this very early stage of the proceedings to offer up any justification for the policy. Well, then the court went on to, to look at this consent, this whole consent issue. And as I said before, the court said, well, usually if you consent to a search or content, consent to, in this case, a pat-down, uh, pat um, you don't have any reasonable expectation of privacy. But the validity of a consent depends on the totality of the circumstances. And they said, this record does not establish that totality. Right. And we don't know how, you know, just from what I heard from you, we don't know the how the back of the ticket um, was presented. We don't know if it was big, if it was very big print. We right. don't know if there was a cover letter. We don't know what there was to give enough notice to even be consent, do we? Right. 
Yeah. So there's a lot of questions and they're saying it has to go back to the trial court to actually develop those facts. Am I right? That's right. And one, one more point is um, even if a, um, a defendant like the 49ers here is able to say, you know, we had a very substantial concern about safety. We're talking about 50 to 100,000 people in one place. We have to take precautions in this uh, post 9/11 era that is that alone will not establish a justification um, there is a body of law and that body of law is developing as we um, sit here today that some people think that the the intrusion must be the least restrictive of your rights as possible so there was the question is was there a lesser invasive way of doing the same thing right and they they contrasted this case, the top to bottom path down, with a case in I think it's Georgia, uh, involving the a similar 49er policy, but involving a public publicly run stadium. And yet there the pat downs were only waist up, not waist down, not full body. Uh huh. And uh-huh. so they you, you see there. The court suggesting that, well, maybe, you know, if it weren't a full body pat down, maybe it would be justified on the grounds of, of safety. But we're not going to tell you what we think about that because we don't decide cases that are not before us. We're just pointing out that uh, there's a pat down policy that was upheld, because it was upheld in, uh, by what we call it the 11th Circuit, which is a federal court. Um, and uh, but that policy involved only waist-up pat-downs, not uh, full-body ones like we have here. You know, Paul, in this day and age, when we have been concerned about terrorism and security and all sorts of safety issues, uh, this case probably goes far beyond just the 49ers. I know when I go to um, a concert at the Honda Center here in Orange County, I, they look through my purse and they have this little wand that they go up and down my body with right, and, exactly. and all that stuff. So, I mean, you know it, you, you, you know, and then I went to uh, the Padres game just the other night. And, and so, again, the same kind what, of thing. What happened there? Well, there it was just really looking in my purse. Okay, they just looked in my purse, and I don't think they looked very hard. <laughs> All I had was a camera and you know some water, but uh, but yeah. So I think the ramifications are far beyond this specific facts, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, on each side here, there were pretty powerful interests. On the Forty Nine er side, actually, the federal government came in on the Forty Nine er side to push the uh, issue of justification. Say, look, you know, we've got, uh, we're we're a different country now uh, than we were 10 years ago, and we need uh, flexibility. Um, The other uh, folks who came in on the 49ers side, and I have full disclosure here, I represented um, these people whom I'm about to describe, were the entertainment, the mass entertainment you know, like the Staples Center, uh, right? Like what, like the Honda Center where I went to, right? Exactly. Yeah, all yeah. Uh, venues where you have large gatherings of people, where they have to have, in my opinion, flexibility to um, protect everybody. Yeah, devise certain protections, and they want to know, okay, what are the limits of our, uh, what can be the limits of our policies? Right. So on on the one hand, you had you know those those folks, and on the other side. Um, the Sheehan's were represented by the ACLU, but they were also supported by empl- employee groups who thought that if we allow pat-downs in this instance, where is it going to stop? Is it going to uh, sort of uh, uh, go over to the employment setting where we're going to have pat-downs or could have pat-downs, could have some sort of body touching by an employer? Um I mean, it's you know, it's possible. I don't. I actually did not give much credence to that. And even even the whole idea of law enforcement, you know, until there's a reasonable, uh, there's some reason to believe that you've committed a crime. I mean, can they just come up and pat you down right away? You know, I mean, this goes far beyond, 
it's with the government, it's with private industry, commercial. Think about when you go to the airport. There is all sorts of issues about these x-ray machines that can actually look at you and see what's under your clothes, for example. Right. And is, is what kind of reasonable expectation of privacy do we have when we go to the airport and someone can, you know, see what we look like under our undergarments? Right. You know, I mean... So, I mean, I can understand the the worry about if someone wants to see if I have a gun or someone has a gun or other, uh, maybe something that's an explosive, but do I really want them to see what my body looks like without clothes? Right, exactly. <laughs> so this is really huge because in this day and age with the technology, what is a reasonable expectation of privacy? It's not the same as it used to be, Right. Right, and we're talking about technologies um, now, uh, eyeballs, you know, your, you can show your eyeball to somebody or your fingerprint, your, you know, you can get access to buildings through running your finger over a scanner or something. Right, or your iris scan, you know, right. we got Star Trek stuff going on. Yeah. And yeah, and, and then the other issue is if you can do all that, you know, who's going to protect that so it isn't shared? For example, if somebody can see your iris scan, and it shows some kind of the beginning of a disease, could that be shared with someone right. that will deny then, you then, insurance? I mean, it, it, who knows what right. could happen? Then you get into the other aspect of privacy, which is informational privacy. Exactly. So you can see that in, uh, encroachments to autonomy privacy can lead to encroachments on informational privacy. Right. So, you know, I remember that case with the the marijuana. It used to be that if you had a reasonable expectation of privacy in your home. and But now, wasn't that a case of that if, if you drive by and you can see with the infrared that they're growing marijuana in the house, is there an expectation of privacy in that now? I, I... Right. I mean, you, if, if you can see it through the window, it's, it's, it's kosher. Right. But can you, if you can see it through infrared, is it kosher? That, exactly. That a lot of issues. Because we have technology now that can penetrate easily and just just driving by you can see things you know right. or or just driving by somebody's house if they don't have a hard wire and they haven't protected their computer you can see everything on their computer and should law enforcement be able to do that if they see child pornography right you know so we've got all these informational privacy issues and autonomy privacy issues and you know, it's it's up in the air with the technology and the needs that we have. It's like, oh my goodness, how do we set boundaries and limits as to privacy? Right. Which leads to the next question, which is the next case. But before I do that, for those of you who are driving by and you're listening to my brilliant guest who we've had before and we love, we're speaking with Paul Fogel, who is an appellate attorney terrific one up in San Francisco with Reed Smith. You can learn more about him at our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy and also at ReedSmith.com. And we're talking about a couple of very important privacy cases in that have gone up to uh, the the appellate court. So let's kind of switch gear, Paul. Mark, before we go to the other case, I okay. just want to say one thing about the Sheehan case. Okay. Um, I think what it signals is that no longer will a defendant uh, like the 49ers be able to get out of having to litigate the issue of whether there was a reasonable expectation of privacy um, in a case like this. And that is significant because, you know, everyone says they don't like litigation and defendants certainly do not like to be dragged through the court system. And I'm very sympathetic to that. I have lots of clients who oftentimes unjustifiably get dragged through lawsuits. But this case says you cannot articulate, you cannot promulgate a policy like this one and expect to get out on the first, you know, in the first week. Right. You've got to develop, if you're going to develop a policy like this and implement it, you're going to have to justify it as a matter of fact to maybe even a jury but for sure a judge after some what they call discovery. So that that's what's important about the Sheehan case, that the Supreme Court was not uh, willing, as the two lower courts had done, not willing to throw the case out at the, on the first bounce. 
You know, I think there's other implications now that you talk about that as as one who is very concerned about privacy and, and having reasonable expectation of privacy and fair boundaries. It also seems like once that case is decided, we're going to get policies that are thought through much more carefully. People aren't just going to think about a policy and put it on there without thinking, gee, can we do something that's less invasive? That's absolutely true. And, you know, and I really do think that that makes it, uh, our state a better place because when you have things that are thought through, very care- narrowly tailored, and, uh, you know, that really, uh, let's say the consent issue, if the print wasn't large enough or if uh, if the waist down was a problem, maybe do only waist up. I mean, you know, as you say, more careful deliberation. That's what this case says. You, you have to be careful because you have uh, autonomy, privacy is a very sacred uh, cow in our society, and we're not going to give it up uh, easily. Right. And and if they sit down with their legal counsel before they write this policy, they're probably going to think about, okay, what can we do that will not interfere with the privacy, that will respect the body and the soul of our customers and and the people who come to the stadium so that they feel safe, yet they also feel respected. Right. So I think it's it's, uh, customer relations as well. It's kind of PR as well, saying, you know, we want to protect you and keep you secure and make you have a good time at the 49ers and enjoy this, but at the same time, we want to be respectful of you. So I think that's what it's all about uh, as well. And I know because I go to a lot of big things. I go to concerts. I go to stadiums. I love my angels here in California and Orange County. But I also want to feel that I'm not uh, over invaded, that my privacy isn't invaded at the same time. Right. So it makes a lot of sense uh, about this. I think you have to have that balance between safety and privacy that it sounds like the Supreme Court is saying, yeah, that's what you need. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, as I want to just say this, you know, many times I say to uh, on this show and, and to my own clients, you know, whenever you can settle out of court and resolve issues, it's really important. But when it comes to issues of precedent and it comes to issues that are really important for society, we do need to get those legal minds to help decipher what is really going on here, what is important. So that's why I, I honor you. Paul, for being an appellate lawyer, to take it to these levels where we get clarity. Yeah, I th- and I think this is a very important and very interesting process. And um, I mean, I think everyone works hard. Everyone who worked in this case, from the lawyers to the parties to the judges, worked hard to try to reach the right result. And I, th- I think this, you know, ultimately, I, I, my personal belief is that this policy is going to be upheld because I think there are many, many people who feel very strongly that a few seconds pat down, um, given what we're dealing with, you know, such a a large number of people in one area, um, is just simply not going to, not that much of a, uh, not that big of a deal. But that remains to be seen. We'll see what what a court says, and we'll see what kind of evidence both sides present. Right. And even if they do say this policy... um may have, you know, that, that that it does have merit for safety and security, maybe everybody will learn how to present that policy in a way that's different and much, much more right. customer-friendly and, you know, all those good things. I mean, that's why it became a, a lawsuit is because there was some bad feelings and maybe they can move beyond those bad feelings. Right. Then there was another important case that came after that. Let's talk about the workplace privacy case. Why don't you okay. tell us about that? That's called Hernandez versus Hillside. Actually, I was wrong. I think it's uh, Hernandez versus Hillside. Hernandez versus Hillside's August third. Yes. Um, that case, the, the Supreme Court confronted um, uh, the issue of under what circumstances can an employer conduct workplace video surveillance of employees without violating their right to privacy. Now, uh, Hillside's is a um, a center in Pasadena that has many uh, buildings. It's a residential treatment center for abused children. Um, so it has several residential buildings and, of course, offices. And two people um, worked in an office um, that was not part of the residential, not in a residential building. And uh, one of them, or both of them, had computers and 
uh, on one of the computers, the uh, the employer, Hillsides, um, found out through just doing a routine maintenance that one of the employee's computers had been uh, used uh, for searching pornographic websites on the Internet. Right. And I think the, the circumstances showed that the searching was being done off hours. So, oh, yeah, after work, as, as I right. recall. Mm-hmm. And so neither of these employees was really suspected of uh, being the culprit uh, using the Internet for improper purposes, which tells you that an employer can monitor, not only monitor the Internet, but may also prohibit use of the Internet for improper purposes. Um, But the employer had no way of finding out who it was because it was um, a locked office, and uh, the employer had some, you know, usual suspects in mind, but really uh, said, you know, I don't want to go pointing fingers. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to set up a video camera uh, inside a closet in such a way and point that camera in such a way that it's pointed at the computer so it will... um, uh, Focus trans- in that area. Right, yeah. transmit uh, images. So right. it was only focused on one of the employee's uh, computers, not the other one. So that takes care of the, the one person who wasn't uh, being monitored. monitored. Yeah. And most importantly here, it was only turned on at night after the, the other person, Hernandez, had left uh, the premises. Now, the director of the facility did not um, notify either of the office occupants about the camera because he was concerned that the suspected culprit would learn about the camera's existence. And as I said, he he did not activate the monitor recorder during times when the employees occupied the office. And so neither plaintiff was ever videotaped. And that's important because they established through, now, this is a case different from the Sheen case. This case went to discovery. They established on summary judgment, remember that second sort of level of um, scrutiny that lawsuits get, get that um, I think they would change their clothes in their office. And they would, they, you know, they would do things that many of us do in our offices that are not open to the public. Or right. we shut the door if we want to comb our hair or do whatever, you know, have right. a private conversation. So. Right. It's clear that they were doing things that were privacy-related, related to their own autonomy privacy, and that's what we're talking about in this case again. Okay, so what happened? They sued. Uh, as it turned out, the uh, employer was never able to find the culprit, but one of them found the video camera um, in the closet and uh, then said, oh, my goodness, my employer has been monitoring me has been uh, surveilling me without my consent. Uh, what's going on here? And although the uh, director of the facility tried to uh, work things out with the employees, he was unsuccessful, and they ultimately sued for a violation of their privacy under, once again, the California Constitutional Right of Privacy in, in Article One, Section 1. So at the trial court, the, um, the court granted what uh, we call a motion for summary judgment, saying, um, I'm sorry, uh, you, uh, there was certainly a justification for this conduct. And there you see the employer was able to put forth its justification, namely that we're trying to get at improper use of the Internet. And criminal use of the Internet. That's right. Because it was child pornography, right? Right. Well, I don't know if it was child pornography. I'm not sure. Oh, oh I th- okay. Not, All right. Maybe I misunderstood. Yeah. Okay. Court of Appeal reversed, saying we're not sure whether there was a. Uh, we're not. We cannot say as a matter of law that there was no intrusion into a protected zone of privacy, and whether the intrusion was uh, 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 was justified. So we're going to send that back to a jury to determine. Mm-hmm. So the the facility then said, okay, we're going up to the Supreme Court. They got the Supreme Court to review the case. And the issue before the court was whether the employees could assert a cause of action for invasion of privacy based on the camera being placed in their office, even though it was operated only after normal working hours and did not capture any video images of those two employees. 
Now, would it have been, and I guess we won't go too far yet, but I just wonder what, because it had no video of the two employees, I wonder if it would have been different had it been that after work they changed clothes to go running and the and maybe they stood behind the computer. I wonder, those would be different facts though, right? I, I think very different. Yes, very yeah. different. The fact that they neither of them were on video, how could they even have standing to say it invaded my privacy? Well, I think they had standing here because it's their work, it's their space. I gotcha. And um, if you find out that your employer has been videotaping your workspace, um, even though they didn't capture you in the act of undressing or doing something private, that is a... Uh, that chills your right to act as you have a right to act, I would think. Well, the other thing I've been seeing in, in, in terms of privacy in the workplace is many policies say your computer is not private. It belongs to the company. Therefore, we have a right to see what's on the computer at any time and give them that kind of notice. Yes. So and do you I know what I mean? That's, so that's, that's why I thought something a little bit different because the there usually is no reasonable expectation of privacy on a computer that belongs to the company. Right, but the expectation here, uh, there was no dispute that the employer could monitor what is happening inside the computer. Right, right, but just it, what was happening issue, outside. <laughs> yeah. The issue is like outside the computer. Right, sort right. Of around the computer, because the whole issue was who's, you know, who is typing those internet uh, addresses in and get uh, accessing in inappropriate material. Right, right. So, um, so, so again, the court turned to this Hill test that uh, we talked about before. And the court basically said, well, it was a, um, they had a legitimate um, uh, expectation of privacy. Right. Um, they had a reasonable expectation of privacy. But was this intrusion highly offensive? Yeah. Was it severe? Was invasion? it highly yeah. offensive? Did it constitute what they call an egregious violation of prevailing social norms? Right. And there the court paused and said, you know what? No, not under these circumstances. And it pointed to the fact that the plaintiffs had not been videotaped themselves. It pointed to the fact that... Um, the camera was turned on only after uh, office hours. It pointed to the fact that the employer had a legitimate basis for wanting to know who uh, in the employee workforce or non-employee workforce was doing these uh, these bad things. Right. Um, now, so, the issue of consent, did that come up too? No, it did not really it came up only in that there was no issue about whether the employer had the right to monitor internet use. Right, because that was a that was part of the. Ex, there is no expectation of privacy on the internet use of an employer's computer. Right, and right. I want to state this for those students that are listening and those employees who are listening. Just remember that there is probably no expectation of privacy when you're using your employer or your or maybe the university's computers so re remember that when you're doing whatever you're doing on the computer you don't really have an expectation of privacy so and that I just includes wanted, email pardon me that includes email exactly right. Right. yeah so the the court the, the reason the court came out the way it didn't come out in the Sheehan case was that it said that activation of the surveillance system was narrowly tailored in place, time, scope, and was prompted by legitimate business concerns. And because the plaintiffs were not at risk of being monitored or recorded during regular work hours, were never caught on camera, um, they just did, the invasion was not serious enough. But, you know, as every court, as the Supreme Court often does, you know, it, it takes a little, it gives a little. And so it's, it, it also said we don't want to encourage um, surveillance in the workplace here. Um, you know, we recognize that their privacy interests, the, these two employees' privacy interests, um, were far from absolute. Um, but they did have a reasonable expectation 
that their employer would not install video equipment capable of monitoring and recording their activities behind closed doors without their knowledge or consent. And that's why the court was kind of troubled by, you know, how should we really analyze this case and how should we come out? And that's why they did it so narrowly. Yes. It's a very narrow ruling. It was mostly cheered by the employer community rather than the employee committee. uh, Community, community. yeah. Um, Because, you know, frankly, it it did allow an employer in very limited limited circumstances to conduct uh, covert surveillance. But those circumstances better be limited. And so the lesson from this case is if you're an employer and you want to um, videotape your employees or videotape your employees' workspace, you better do it in such a way that guarantees that you're not going to violate their legitimate expectation of privacy. And the mere fact that they are at work does not mean you own them and own every aspect of them while they're on, uh, at the work site. Yes, and I think a lot of employees are very worried in recent years about having no privacy. I'm, I'm questioning, though, was there, if we just look at it, was there a less intrusive way? Could they have had audit trails, for example, special passwords that um, on the computer, you can't get into the computer without your very special password, and that to get out of the uh, the company's site into the internet, you'd have to use a password, and then they could do an audit trail. I don't know right. how hard that would be, well, but that, that's, that's a really less good an, question because you know? that poses the whole issue of what a private employer, not public. So let's take the government out of this. This is a private employer. Does a private employer? This is a very interesting legal question. Does a private employer have to justify its intrusion with the least intrusive means? or any reasonable ah. intrusive means. And so what the court pointed out here, drawing from prior decisions, was at least in the private employment or private defendant context, if it's reasonable, if the justification you advance is reasonable and makes sense to us, we're not going to you know, scrutinize that so carefully and sort of micromanage you in saying, there are 10 other least restrictive means that you could have used, and you are going to be on the hook for a large damages award because you didn't employ one of those. Now, that is different from the public context where we have a, a very subtle body of constitutional law, also in the privacy uh, arena, saying if your rights are being violated, the, the government must, must violate them in the least restrictive manner, least yes. intrusive manner. Yes. You know, it just reminds me of this case that a woman called me from Florida. She was a nurse, and um, actually the the various nurses had access to get, uh, to order drugs, all right, and for patients. And somehow, and this is unfortunate, somehow they did have an audit trail with passwords, but they were not careful about, keeping passwords to individuals, and uh-huh, someone right. used her password and got all sorts of drugs, and she was fired, and it wasn't her. Oh, boy. And she proved, listen to this, she was able to prove that it, she was not working those evenings that, that this happened, you know, that her password was used. Mm-hmm. However, because it was her password, they, they still fired her. And the issue is, wait a minute, you know, even though you have this audit trail with passwords, Everybody had access to everybody else's passwords, so it wasn't really a, a fair audit trail. But I think those are the kinds of issues that, that arise when you've got this, uh, these issues of you know, who did what, who's looking at what, who's ordering what, who has access to what. Right. It, um, I think it's very interesting for employment privacy right now, what is going on and what is your reasonable expectation of privacy so the the bottom line is did did in that particular case was the was the camera focused and maybe I don't know if you know this on the back of the person so they could see the websites that the person was going to or was it focused on the front of the computer somebody who might be there at night 
the reason I ask that is what if somebody stayed after work to do work, like my secretary does sometimes, all right? She stays after work. And, but if somebody else had access to that computer, um, you wouldn't know necessarily who, who was the one who went to the pornographic websites. Right. I can't remember whether, how it was pointed. I'm, um, I'm looking at the opinion. I just can't remember exactly where it was. I think it was um, pointed at the computer screen. Okay, so then you would see what they're, what they're doing. Yeah. 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 But you, you can see how the facts of each case are going to be a little bit different. And if they are different, they make a huge difference in what is reasonable and what's not reasonable. Yes, absolutely. And the way you do it. Right. And right. You, it wouldn't be reasonable. Let's say people were stealing stuff from the bathroom, <laughs> faucets or something, or paintings. Toilet paper. Yeah. Would it be reasonable to have a video camera in the bathroom? Well, I think that that comes up in the, um, uh, you know, there are these cases about can they have video cameras in uh, in the dressing room in a department store. Right. Uh, that's a very interesting body of law, and I think the answer is no. Right. For precisely the reason you're suggesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, if, if they are worried about theft of clothing, they put those little things on, you know, those little right. plastic things that buzz, and, you know, right. it's, it's very embarrassing. Every once in a while, if I walk out of a store and they forgot to take it off, right. and then, of course, I have to run back and show them I bought this, and, oh, you forgot, oh, so right. we're so sorry. We forgot to take off this little button right. here. That uh, So that's a less invasive way of finding if you're stealing items, yeah. you know, right. unless you have one of those little... Uh, removers yourself, right. you, you know, you're not going to be able to do that. And of course, this is, um, we have to remember that this case was confined to the employment um, context. Right. It's not a customer, you know, in a department store, it's a customer trying on clothes, which is a, um, you know, a whole different set of, uh, set of facts and it may trigger a whole different analysis. Right, right. Um, but I think, you know, what has to happen now is uh, employers need to reexamine their policies concerning employee privacy. Um, and be transparent about exactly, it. Exactly. Provide notice. Right. Um, and, uh, and have these handbooks that people know what the expectation is, explain the reasons why. But you know what? I, I see we're out of time. Paul, whenever we talk to you, you just are so filled with wonderful gems of wisdom that we just have to have you back again you're okay. just too well, wonderful fun. okay and i really appreciate it well we will have you back again and thank you for joining us okay Thanks okay a lot. you've been listening to kuci 88.9 fm in irvine and kuci.org on the net i'm mari frank visit our website at kuci.org slash privacy piracy write us an email about what you want to know about and see our upcoming guests and download pad- podcasts and also Listen to our archived interviews. Thank you. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm pleased to also present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips. And we're welcoming back Lieutenant Andy Ferguson, who is the Chief of Police Services in Laguna Niguel, California. Thank you for joining us again. That's great to be back, Mari. Well, tell us about some of the challenges of being a Chief of Police. I'll tell you, in Laguna Niguel, um, the biggest challenge is trying to keep up with the three lieutenants that were here before me. You know, we have great programs and, and projects and, and things we're doing in town, and those great things came from those previous chiefs, and I'm just trying to, to keep up with them and, and uh, you know, the good crime rate they had and, and the good things they've been doing over the past uh, 19 years here in town. 
Well, that's terrific. I know we've been pretty safe and have been happy to live here and work here. So what are some of your safety goals and other goals for the city of Laguna Niguel? Well, I'll tell you, um, I want the community to really feel like um, that we're really a part of them and they're a part of us, that, that we're working together to try to make it a better place, to keep crime down, that you know we're their local department and uh, they can contact for us for just about anything they need. That's good to know because I think that's part of the feeling of working here and feeling safe and living here and just feeling good about this wonderful city. And welcome back to to Laguna Niguel as our chief. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah, it's great to be back. Okay. Give us your website again, too. Absolutely. The, the website is ocsd.org. And again, there's a link to uh, our patrol areas on there, and you can click on any city you'd like, including Laguna Niguel. Well, thank you very much, and we'll have you back. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye.